Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. This is why I have committed to teaching God's Word line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and yes, even at times, word by word, every Sunday and every Wednesday night for the past 19 plus years. I've done this because I know that it is a simple truth of God's Word when it is faithfully taught in its full context and when it's made the central focus of every message that it will convey real spiritual power and authority to anybody who's listening. And I can take a powerful, unwavering, authoritative stand on it as I share it with you in this, which, in this way, which, which I can't do when I'm teaching my own ideas intermingled with Scripture as a secondary source. To make Scripture secondary to any message being shared does nothing more than create a watered-down effect to the authoritative truth of God. Only God's Word taught as the primary message is truly powerful and authoritative. Now, this is not to say that it's wrong for me to, or for you to interject personal stories or examples or even our own experiences, our own views even, at times into messages that we share with people. But those things must always be secondary to what we share, because if they're not, they will drain the power and authority from what is being communicated about God. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They made it so much about themselves that what little of the word they did share lost all of its authority because it got polluted. It became a a polluted cistern, as Jeremiah would call it, a broken cistern that just ebbed in the pollution of our thoughts and ideas. Folks, this is one of the reasons that I believe that Christianity in our world today has become so anemic and so sickly. And and maybe I shouldn't say in our world, maybe I should just keep it to the restriction of our own country. I believe that there's there's a sickliness and an anemia to, to Christianity today, and it's because so few are teaching with real spiritual power and authority anymore. Now look, lots of messages out there are being cloaked in authority and power. But authority and power isn't communicated by a shout or a yell or by the dimming of lights or the brightening of lights or whatever else. It's not, it's not communicated through a PowerPoint, that presentation that's so, so, so well laid out. That's not the power and authority that people need. And, and, and while I believe that there's lots of messages being shared about God today in our nation, few are sharing the word of God itself. And although many have created that aura of power and authority through those dynamic teaching styles and sensory stimulating techniques, true power and authority is missing because the Word of God is missing in it all. This is why I think you will often hear Christians say, maybe you've even said it yourself, I pray it's never been here or it shouldn't be here. 
But if it has been here, I'd welcome you to come and talk to me so we can have a chat because then I need to make a correction. But I've heard so many people who've even come here or to a church that is faithfully teaching the Word of God, and they're saying, you know, I, I went into that church and I was so hungry. I, I came out of a place where I heard a lot of good messages, but I still left those places feeling empty, spiritually unfulfilled, spiritually hungry. You know, I, a number of years ago, there was a well-known pastor of a church that had been in the forefront of, of what was known as the seeker movement. That's a term today that's gotten lost. People don't understand what it is anymore, but it was a movement. It's still in, a, in our thinking in a lot of churches, but, you know, it was a thinking that said that our goal is to reach the lost. Every service is designed to reach the lost. Do we want to reach the lost in our services? Let me make that perfectly clear. We absolutely do. But, but the primary purpose of the service is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry so that you can grow up in the faith and go out and reach the lost. That's the purpose of church. It's the purpose of the local body and why we gather. But he said that they, they were focused on a movement that was all about everything was orchestrated toward the unbeliever. So messages couldn't be from the Bible in the same way because the, the Bible would be too much for an unbeliever to handle. So we, we push away from the Bible. We might pick and cherry a verse here and there and use it. But what we're going to do is we're going to orchestrate a message that will appeal to the unbeliever. Oftentimes, I would argue the messages and still are in some cases carnal. They're designed to appeal to the carnality of people with the hope that maybe in the process we can connect with them in some way and they'll come to believe. This pastor who, who led this movement in a lot of ways and a lot of churches founded their entire philosophy on his thing and his church grew, but he came to a place and I heard an interview on a local radio station one day. This is a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, but he come on and he says, I've made a mistake. I've erred. I've made a big mistake. We've made a big mistake in what we've done. He said, granted, we've reached a lot of people for the gospel and we've led a lot of people to Christ. But now we have all these people in our church who are saying who've been in Christ for some time are moving on and complaining that they just feel like they're hungry, like they're empty, like they're not getting fulfilled. And he said, we've realized that what's lacking is we've geared our message to the unbeliever, but we've never trained up and discipled believers. How do we do that? Through the Word of God. And so he said, you know, we kept hearing Christians say how much they love the atmosphere of the church and how we touch them and leading them to Christ. But now that they've been in Christ for a while, how they feel like they're leaving our services empty and hungry, unfulfilled spiritually. And we concluded that while we were doing everything right in presenting the gospel to them and getting them plugged into activities of all sorts at the church, we were doing lots of things wrong in discipling them in God's words. You see, this pastor recognized the reality that any presentation that lacks the fullness and the full focus of God's words as its centerpiece, not just taught in snippets and in bites, not just taught as supporting information, but taught in its glorious and powerful and authoritative fullness, will always leave people unfulfilled. And, and, and it'll lead them to spiritual anemia and, and starvation over time, even though they may not realize that they're starving at first. Do you know that people who starve get to a point where they no longer realize that they're starving? A point where they don't even crave food anymore. It, it, they're not even thinking about it anymore. I personally believe that a lot of Christianity is starving today because the real food they need has been cut off in their churches, and they're so used to it, they don't even realize that they're starving anymore. 
the appetite's fading away. But you know what? Wave a good steak in front of their nose. The steak, it's right here. It's the Word of God. Wave a good steak under their nose and watch. Watch. Watch what happens. Watch how they begin to sense the hunger pains, the emptiness that they're feeling because they don't have that all that time. Wave that stake in front of them and watch how God begins to stir that, them again. I hope that for some of you who are new to listening to our broadcasts, or maybe you're new to Calvary Chapel, Cumberland Valley, or those of you who've been listening and watching online, that you're finding that I'm waving a stake under your nose each and every week, and that it's awakening your hunger in you for these spiritual things that's been created by a lack of true spiritual nutrition over the years. We need the Word of God, and it needs to be the centerpiece of all that we talk about. Everything else is fine. It's secondary. What we need is the Word of God primarily focused. Because that's where real power and authority is found. And in addition to God's Word being the central focus of any message, only a life lived in alignment with what is being shared will result in that message having true spiritual power and authority. Let me say that to you again. Only a life lived in alignment with what is being shared will result in that message having true spiritual power and authority. The religious leadership of Israel, though they they could teach it at times, and they would teach it at times, teaching the Word of God at times, they also didn't live it, though. (laughs) When they were teaching, they still weren't living. As As a result, there was power and authority missing in what they were sharing. And even though the people didn't realize why, they clearly recognized that there was something different when Jesus, the Word of God in the flesh, (laughs) appeared before them and began to share the Word with with them and lived it before them. There was an authority behind it all which they'd not seen before. Now look, none of us, as I said earlier, none of us are Jesus. None of us us are God in the flesh. So I'm not suggesting that you and I need to live perfect lives in order for us to be able to share with people in a powerful and authoritative way, but there must be congruency. There needs to be a pattern of alignment of living what it is that we're sharing and teaching with people. They need to be able to see that in our own lives personally. There is an authority when our lives testify that we believe the Word of God that we're sharing with people. I have to tell you, it's it's one of the, the hardest things for me. And, and please don't think this is just a message about pastors. This is about you sharing the Word of God with people, that you come in contact with, ministering to people, sharing even the Word of God with unbelievers. And by the way, just to, to make a comment to something I said earlier, look, I am not a fan of, of dumbing down a message in order to reach the lost. I'm not a fan, nor do I believe we should compromise by, by somehow appealing to the carnality of man in order to get carnal man to look at spiritual things. The best hope we can give to people is to take the Word of God and to present it to them, to show them what God says about salvation, what God says about man's sinful condition, by showing the hope that Jesus gives in Himself as written in the Scriptures. And yeah, share your personal testimony with them, but let your testimony be secondary to the truths of Scripture and to let it align with that. 
but people also need to see your life aligned with what it is that you're professing. It's hard to witness to somebody and say, I'm a Christian, but yet your life doesn't line up with what it is that Christianity is declared to be in the Scriptures, you see. It's one of the hardest things, and I was just getting ready to head there, but it's one of the hardest things for me as a pastor. And yet it's one of the things that's brought so much change to my life is that I know that when I stand up here week after week before you and I share the Word of God, I'm being challenged by the Lord continually. Are you doing this? Are you living this? Are you walking in conformity to this? And sadly, I have to look at you and say, there are just times when I look at this and say, no, Lord, I'm not. And I know that if I were to continue to move that direction, not being in conformity to what it is I'm teaching, my teaching would be shallow and empty, and it would lack the real power and authority. So my heart then is, Lord, you need to bring me into alignment. I want to be in alignment. I want to live what it is that I'm preaching. You know, you parents understand this, although sometimes we don't like it. You know, we'd rather have our kids do what we say and not what we do. But the truth is, we know the greatest impact we have on our children is to also ask them to do what we're doing. That we're living by example for them. That communicates something. And when it comes to the spiritual, it communicates true power and authority. Well, that's what the people were seeing in Jesus as he taught them. And they were seeing something in him and in his teaching that they had not seen before, an authority which they were unfamiliar with as he opened up the word of God to them and lived it before them. And in the process, he was awakening a hunger in them that had been dormant as a result of their spiritually starved lives, spiritual starvation that had gone on for far too long. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, while presenting an outward appearance of authority uh, in their teachings, had created a climate of spiritual starvation by reducing their teachings to the traditions of men, the ideas of men, and, and, and their own failure to live God's Word as an example to the people. But Jesus, man, he was waving a spiritual stake right underneath their noses as he taught them with a power and authority that could only come from God's Word being central and taught in its fullness as demonstrated in his own life as he lived it before them. And it was stirring them in seeing something different. I kept using that steak analogy this morning outside. This is probably a bad weekend to do that on on Labor Day weekend when everybody's really grilling. And I could see the crowd out there was starting to lick their chops. You know what? That's exactly what should happen when we're sharing God's word with people, that it, that it would cause them to lick their chops. And that happens when we're sharing the word in its primacy as, as the focal point. And then we're living our lives congruent with what it is we're sharing. Verse 33 goes on. It tells us, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Luke now tells us that as Jesus entered the synagogue, he encounters a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, which literally means this man was demon-possessed. It's interesting to note that in describing the situation, Luke actually uses language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 that describes us as Christians being in Christ. And the idea is that just as our being in Christ means that we're under Christ's authority, so too this man was under the authority of a demon. 
Now, several thoughts here in regard to demon possession while we're broaching this topic this morning. And I think these are important because I do think that there's a lot of confusion about demon possession. Is it real? What is? What are we to make of this? What do we do with this? Look, just a number of things, and you might want to write them down. Number one, demon possession as presented in the Scriptures are a very real occurrence. Demon possession as presented in the Scriptures are a very real occurrence. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. There is no reason for us to read any reference to such accounts in the Scripture as being allegorical or being symbolic in any way. But the Scriptures present them to us as literal occurrences in the lives of people, and we must accept these accounts literally as such. I say that because there are far too many Christians who try to minimize accounts like this when they come to them in the Scriptures because of the unexplainable spiritual nature of those kinds of things. They can't relate to it, and, 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 and since they can't relate to it with their human minds, they try to explain it away giving all sorts of explanations for what the Scriptures are speaking of. Well, it's not demon possession. It was a darkness that was possessing their life. It was just a giving over to evil things and and living it out that way. Listen, that's a big mistake. The Scriptures present it literally. We need to see it literally when we come to it in the Scriptures. Number two, demon possession did not end in Jesus's or the disciples' day. So even though we might not be aware of it in our day-to-day, it is still a very real occurrence in our world. There's nothing in the Scriptures that would indicate in, in any way that demon possession only occurred during a specific period of time in biblical history and that at some point it ceased happening. Part of the reason we don't recognize it today is because in our world, driven by human logic and intellect, we've reduced demon possession to explainable issues. We might call it a medical issue. We might say it's a psychological disorder. We might say it was the pepperoni pizza they ate. Yet in many cases, not in all cases, it's it's not a disorder or a medical condition, but it's true demonic possession. We just no longer relate to it all as such in our educated culture, our educated minds. I mean, after all, this is the 21st century, right? We don't believe in such superstitious things any longer. So we give it a different label, a label that fits our educated minds. For example, we might label it a psychosis. We might label it schizophrenia. We might label it disassociative identity disorder, previously known as multiple personality disorder. But in reality, in some cases, not in all, please hear what I'm saying, not in all cases, but in some cases it might actually be demon possession. You know, I... um, when I first came to Christ, I was an enlisted soldier in the army, and in the first year of coming to Christ, um, I had an experience, no, not me, I had an experience with someone who was demon-possessed. I know that for a fact, and it was a roommate of mine. And this young man, though he professed some form of spirituality, it was a bizarre form of spirituality, it was believing in a multitude of different gods, but this this young man had started to exhibit. First, it was sort of quiet, and then we began to see it more and more, began to exhibit all sorts of behaviors. One of the behaviors he exhibited is that he would have these unexplainable 
almost like a cardiac event. It was like he, he his chest would tighten up and, and all sorts of things. And, and, and the doctors, they got him to the doctor to look at this, and the doctor said, there's nothing physically, physically wrong with him. I mean, when he'd have these, he'd throw himself to the floor, and he'd begin to writhe around on the floor. And the doctor said, it's, it's all psychological, it's anxiety, it's this, it's that. He gave it a whole bunch of different names and everything else. But there was a sense, even as a young Christian, I had there was something far more to this because of some of the behaviors that went with it, the, the guttural language that he would break out with when these episodes were occurring, the cursing, the swearing, the taking the Lord's name in vain, a God he didn't even believe in, you know, all sorts of things. Well, I was hanging out with another group of guys in the barracks who were Christians, and one of the guys and I had come back from a weekend away. It was a, a Christian retreat, and we were talking about my roommate. And talking about this situation, he, he shared with me, he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion. He said, I believe your roommate's possessed. And I said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. How do we determine this? How would we know? And we both came to the conclusion. We, we pulled back into the parking lot after that weekend. It was Sunday night. And I saw my roommate's car on the parking lot. Now, he tended to go nowhere except the mess hall in the room, other than when he was working on, on a Sunday. And during the week, he was out at the bars. And... I said, you know what? Let's do something. I'm going to go up to the room. It was about quarter to seven. I said, I'm going to go up to the room. You stay here in the car. And I said, when I go into the room, if he's there, I won't come back out. But if he's not there, I'll come back out and let you know. But assuming I don't come back out at seven o'clock, precisely at seven o'clock, I want you to begin to pray for the Lord to reveal to us if this is demonic possession. And so I went into the room and, and there was my roommate. He's in his bed and he's sleeping. I mean, he's sounder. So he has no idea of what we just talked about. Of course, he wasn't there anyways, but he would have had no way of knowing what it is we had decided to do. And so I just quietly went to my bed and I sat down across from his and I watched. And at seven o'clock, precisely at seven o'clock, this young man sat up, shot up in his bed, like from the prone position right into an L shape, right up, sat up reached behind himself, grabbed a pair of scissors off the desk, and began to shred his mattress while he was screaming out profanities. Just shred the mattress. Well, even as I share the story with you right now, the hair on my arm stands up and my neck. And now you can imagine how, as a young Christian, that just shook me to the core. I quickly got out of the room. First of all, I was kind of concerned for my life. And two, I knew in that moment that what we were dealing with was demon possession. You know, later, and, and I'll just bring the story to an end because it's not the focus. But, you know, uh, we did pray. We got He got to a place uh, along the way where we were able to pray with him, a group of us, and we laid hands on him and we prayed for him. And, and through Christ's authority, we called this thing, you know, and had the Lord just to, to, to deliver this guy. Asked the Lord and begged him to do that, and the Lord did. And that young man professed Christ after that, and his life changed dramatically. So, is it real? Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I've seen cases of it. I know it is. And yet doctors, people would look and say, oh, it was all just psychological illness. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. We have no reason to believe that it ended with a certain period of history. Third, demon possession only affects the unsaved, not the believer. Let me make this perfectly clear. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have professed Christ, you have placed your faith in him, and you are a believer in Christ, you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed. You cannot 
be possessed. The, the teachings by some in Christianity that, that, that convey the idea that the sins in a believer's life can indicate demon possession is both unscriptural and it, it, it negates the believer's responsibility for his or her own sin. Even though Scripture does not address this topic directly, Scripture is still very clear about it all. First of all, demon possession involves a demon having direct and complete authority over a person by taking up residence in them. Yet we also know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the one who takes up physical residence in the believer. (laughs) Jesus himself tells us this in John 14, verses 15 through 17, John 14 Beginning in verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, Spirit's in you as a believer. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul makes it perfectly clear because he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That word dwells means tabernacles. In other words, he makes his home in you. In fact, Scripture tells us that if we don't have the Spirit dwelling in us, we are really not Christ's. We're really not Christians. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.